Welcome to the Leadership Trap Podcast, recorded live here in Austin, Texas. In this podcast, we explore the conditions that lead to surviving and thriving in a successful leadership role. We examine the traps that can cause leaders to stumble, bumble, or get ambushed in ways that may or may not be of their own making. I'm Dr. Chris Petrovka, and with David Hewen of Austin WorkNet, we have a conversation with each leader that explores the traps that they have encountered through their leadership journey. Hopefully it brings a new perspective to your role as a leader and helps you navigate your own way through the traps. Thanks for joining us. Let's jump into the trap. Wow, David, another great guest. Tell us a little bit about Gordon Darty. Yeah, I, I consider Gordon the startup whisperer. He has uh, developed over a lengthy career, mainly uh, heading up um, tech ventures that ultimately led him to the point of um, founding the um, Capital Factory, Austin's Capital Factory. Uh, And now he spends 100% of his time educating, advising, investing in tech startups. He's on a number of boards of directors. Uh, He has a passion for this, but it's not a passion that is uh, overly assertive. He's a um, a, a gentle prodder and leader of um, people who have a commitment to start up something profound. And he he can be the guy by the side. So really an impressive guest. Yeah. And he recently launched that new book too, Startup Success. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. And, Very- and he emphasized, even though he's a tech-centric guy by background, uh, the more we dug into that, uh, and he emphasized it. This is for anyone who's starting up a business and and knowing that ultimately they're going to have to uh, seek funding uh, because there is a, an angle to that book, but there's a lot of just general wisdom about starting up a business, period. And I think that applies to this episode because it wasn't just about startups and entrepreneurs. One of, A few, few things that, that stood out for me was we talked about the elevator pitch. And that also resonated because it doesn't just apply to your elevator pitch about your startup. It's about who you are and your brand. I thought that was good. Um, A few other things he highlighted, the eight personas of successful entrepreneurs. Oh, yeah. And right. I mean, he said he he spent a couple of years working on that. Right. Yeah, Uh, that's true. He didn't just say like, I woke up this morning and put together the right. He really was very thoughtful. About yeah, that. I thought that's good. And then we also had an interesting segment about early versus late in career founders and what those differences look like and the traps they run into and how he mentors them differently, which I thought was really interesting. The uh, The other one that stood out for me, I'll mention is um, the mentoring component, because again, mm-hmm. didn't just apply to startups, but and we, the advice for mentees as well as mentors and how to create that healthy relationship, I think applies to, to anyone in business. And then- yeah. The last one, I, I, I just as a teaser, your moral dilemma was fantastic. And so mm-hmm. if anybody listens to this and you need advice on how to fire your VP of marketing, you don't want to miss this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a perennial um, uh, moral dilemma. We've carried it over now with uh, anyone who's been in the CEO seat and had to go after funding. Uh, and for him to be sort of on the other side of the table and uh, mentoring along the way, which, by the way, mentoring is a theme for regular listeners of the leadership trap. Um, that's an emphasis we want to reinforce that uh, understanding the value of mentoring, understanding how you can add value as a mentor if you're at a stage where your body of work can make a difference for others who are early into their career. Uh, Gordon fits that profile uh, beautifully. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Gordon Doherty. All right, we're back with another edition of The Leadership Trap. Gordon, so glad you're on our show today. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Gordon, it's a tough start with you simply because of the breadth of your background. So when you meet someone, as folks often do, they say, so, Gordon, what do you do? How do you respond to that? (laughs) Well, I usually tell them that I spend 100% of my time educating, advising, and investing in tech startups. That's the best way I can describe what I'm doing today. Got it. And you did say tech. So your preference is to stay uh, in that lane. So if someone comes to you and says, you know, I have this really interesting thing I want to do with uh, pets. So uh, I've got a startup in mind. Uh, Do you steer them elsewhere? 
Not necessarily. Uh, what I would tell them is, look, um, my 28-year career before co-founding Capital Factory was all in tech companies. So that's what I know. And then I say, there's a lot that I know and have experienced that crosses over to other types of businesses. So let's talk, but that's my caveat. And I found I run a boot camp called Founders Academy um, once a quarter. It's a three-day lunch and learn. And I discovered many years ago that about 10 or 20% of the attendees were not running tech companies. They're running services companies. They might be opening a flower shop or a landscaping business, and they'd come up and ask me a question. And I would quickly realize they're not a tech company. And so I would ask, are you getting value from what I'm talking about? Like, I'm, I'm teaching concepts for tech companies. And they'd say, Gordon, 80 or 90% of this still applies. Sometimes I need to translate, you know, one word into another word or something. But yeah, I totally get it. So that was really, uh, that was an interesting revelation to me, to be honest with you. I couldn't agree more because I've sat through some of those workshops, Gordon, and I can tell you, I sat through and there wasn't as much around the, here's the technical elements that people tend to think about. Oh, it's tech. It, mm-hmm. There was things like, I'll never forget, like how to do the elevator pitch. Like, yeah. That has stuck with me forever. Like I went home and spent like a few hours like, okay, I got to get this rhythm down just right. Yeah. So yeah. the way you do it, not only just here's here's the layout, the structure, very practical, but the the way you deliver it is also motivating in a sense. Like you leave fired up, which I, I got to say is, is pretty powerful. Good. Thank you. I appreciate that. So let's dig in a bit to the leadership aspects of startups, uh, if we could. Um, what are the key attributes of a successful early stage entrepreneurial CEO? And I, I emphasize it in just this way, right? These are the ones that get it off the ground. So what attributes do you look for, emphasize, and mentor along the way? Well, there's, uh, I'd say there's a couple that are foundational. And then from there, just like anything um, in a business career, there are a variety of other ways to be successful. But I find for entrepreneurship, it starts with having a personal passion for the problem that's being solved or the opportunity that's being unlocked. See, starting a startup is so stressful. It's so much hard work. There's so much negative energy. And when I mean negative energy, what I mean is a lot of no's. You get a lot of no's from investors, a lot of no's from prospective customers. So that's what I mean um, by negative energy. So founders that don't have genuine passion for the problem they're solving or the opportunity they're unlocking, they'll just give up um, reasonably quickly because there's too much, it's too hard, too much negative energy. But if they have that fire in their belly for that, they will power through. It doesn't mean they'll be successful, but you need to get through a handful, maybe dozens of those difficult and low periods to have a chance So that kind of starts as a foundation. And I'd say beyond that, some common ingredients would be um, driven, scrappy, um, something that resembles charisma. But I don't mean it um, like a rock star standing on stage and everybody wants to be like him or her, uh, but an ability to convey an idea and a vision in a way that others can want to come along with it. A lot of founders are introverts. And they don't feel like they have that charisma, but they just don't realize charisma in the way I'm describing it really is just them telling others what they're working on in a way that sound that that recruits them in. Like if they also happen to have a passion, it's going to recruit them in like a magnet. Now, from there, you go on to all kinds of things. I, I wrote an article titled The Eight Personas of Successful Entrepreneurs, and I worked on it for about two years because I really wanted to think about how might I characterize the different personas that could lead to a successful career as an entrepreneur. And there are many, some people you think that you have to be this like extroverted, you know, pound your fist on the table type. And I I really don't think that's the case. I have seen all different types of personalities uh, be successful in entrepreneurship. It it felt that way to me as I was going through that. And and I, I certainly, I, my attempt at it was a, um, a live music booking app and, and, you know, which is really, really difficult to do, but I had that conviction and I got a lot of feedback through that process that I'm very introverted, but it was, I went in knowing I really believe in this. Yeah. And I, I developed, I got some early, early, very early stage seating. I did get some, a few folks. I couldn't get over that hump. I couldn't get enough. Yeah. So 
what's your advice and how do you turn the corner, right? You get a little start and you feel good. And you're like, Ooh, there's some momentum. And I, I bet there's probably a lot of startups that get to that point, but how do you turn that, turn that corner? Well, it's a difficult one because um, I have seen a number of times where it is it is that one missing puzzle piece or that one domino that needs to topple, and all of a sudden things just start coming together. It's crazy. I've I have personally predicted uh, many crash and burns that one or two things happened in a short period of time, and then uh, then then that led to a few other things, and then they're off to the races. Sometimes it's bringing on another member of the team, uh, and it's really hard for solo entrepreneurs. Uh, they're doing everything. When you add a second and a third, if they add the right second and third, where each of them have a different superpower, if they all three have the same superpower, it's actually way sub-optimized. There was another purpose for the article that I wrote is to describe how you want these different successful personas to come together and as early as possible, the first five, if you can have multiple different superpowers, that's a really good one. I also find that being coachable is important. And there's really a fine line because you have to be confident as a founder. You have to know deep down inside that what you're working on is going to change the world or, or whatever. And I find that there's a fine line between confidence and cockiness. And one of my uh, jobs as a mentor, as an advisor, as an angel investor, as a board director is to identify when a founder has crossed the line from confidence to cockiness. And I have to diplomatically slap them in the head and knock them back over on the other side of the line. <laughs> I often tell angel investors that the, the combination I'm looking for is confident yet coachable, but not cocky. Yeah, um, nice. So those are some ingredients and then, you know what, you, you know, you use the word, we use the word luck a lot. Uh, and then many people have professed that luck is when uh, preparation meets opportunity. Uh, and the preparation means working your ass off. And it means reading a lot, listening a lot, listening to advice and deciding what to take. And then, you know what, the opportunity part of that, sometimes it is just timing. There's a lot of startups that are that are ahead of their time. The, mar the market is not ready for them or whatever it happens happens to be. And then the last comment, Chris, I'll make is that I think too many founders feel like the definition of success is to build a unicorn valuation uh, tech startup. And that is so far from the case. I, I think it's fine to set off on that as a mission. But you know what? I know a lot of founders that their startup did not become a highly scalable entity, but it became sustainable and they're generating $2 million or $10 million a year, and they have 20 or 50 employees that really love working for the company, and their customers love their products, and that sounds like success to me. Yeah, sorry. Uh, just for our podcast listeners, I am violently shaking my head yes. <laughs> <laughs> that pressure is so true to feel like you got to be a unicorn. And I kept having to tell myself, no, no, just steady, 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 stay focused this whole time. <laughs> I've even had startups that crashed and burned and, and they just felt so bad and, and they, they knew they, they lost some investors' money and whatnot. So first thing I have to tell them is, look, your investors knew this was high risk. They've already gotten over it. I know, you know it's respectable that you feel bad about it, but I'll ask them. Hey, over the three years that you went after this, how many people did you employ? And you know, some have come and gone and whatnot. Well, God, I guess we had uh, like lifetime, you know, fourteen employees. Like, okay, and you paid them money, right? Yeah, we paid them some money, and and you had customers, right? Well, yeah, we had some customers. Did they like your product? Well, yeah, they liked the product. And I say, look, it didn't work out. Like, but that's not a failure. You hired some employees. They probably learned some things. You paid them a salary. You had happy customers you know, what did you learn? And I was like, hey, it didn't work out, but look at all that you did over the last three years. And, and that's that's so often missed in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, so you keyed a couple of thoughts uh, as you were describing some of the early work that you do with um, entrepreneurs and also giving them a bit of a rationale associated with what success looks like. Do you at times immediately get an indication when you meet an entrepreneurial CEO that this your your business instinct, your experienced instinct says this person will never scale with the uh, company. And, yes. and it, I'm sure, yeah, you're nodding your head. So do you have an obligation to mentor them in a certain way as a result of that clear and early uh, indication? Well, what do you do under that circumstance? 
you know, most first-time entrepreneurs have never been an executive, much less the CEO of a company. So, you know, what they're trying to accomplish is really, it's an amazing feat, an amazingly difficult feat. Um, they're trying, a lot of them haven't even been a first-line manager, right? But even those that have been in management but haven't been the CEO or a senior executive, they just can't imagine what it's like to lead a company and to have their head hit the pillow with the full burden of everything on their shoulders. And so um, I, I do many times conclude or, or uh, surmise that the founder I'm facing is very unlikely to be able to lead the venture for very long. Um, if I were to make a prediction, um, I'd say many times I'm wrong. Like I might predict like, ah, you know what? This founder can probably lead this for a year or 18 months, but when they get to a million or two, no way, they're going to need to bring somebody in. You know what? A third of the time or half the time, I'm surprised at how much the founder is able to develop as they go. That's the thing is like they have to, they're learning as they're executing the company and they don't have time to go off to one month boot camps and things to learn how to be a leader. They're, they're running the company and they're working 80 hours a week. So I'm very often wrong in my, in my uh, prediction on that. So instead, what I might do is just early on have a discussion with them about, hey, there is a chance that this company, as it becomes really successful, will reach a point where you're not the best person to run the company in the best interest of the company. you know. And, and I'll have a discussion with them about what is most important. Is it most important that the thing that you're building changes the world and becomes you know, really successful? Uh, or is it important that you remain the CEO of this company? You know, you will forever be the founder. Nobody can take your founder title away. That's the great thing. But how important is it for you to have the CEO title forever? And I'm really disappointed when the when I when the founders give me some version of no, no, no. I, I'm I want to be the CEO of this company all the way until we do an IPO. You That's know? an indicator in and of itself, isn't it, Gordon? Yeah. And I say, look, that could happen, but there are very few Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerbergs and fill in the blanks because that's what they'll do. They'll always throw out the, well, so-and-so did it and so-and-so did it. And they'll rattle off like four or five names. I'm like, yeah, that's like one one thousandth of one percent yeah. of all companies, you know? So, you know, you might be one of those, but I'm just going to, I say, if I'm a betting man, I'm going to bet you a hundred dollars and every other founder that I meet that they will not be the CEO when it's 50 million in revenue. And I know I'm going to lose a few of those bets, but I'm going to make, I'm going to win the bet so many other times. And I'll tell them, look, I'm not making a judgment on you. I just want you to think about this for a little bit because you're going to go raise money from investors and they're going to be thinking about this question as well. So something else you said earlier, Gordon, thanks for that, uh, intrigued me, which I haven't posed to someone in your capacity. And that is, do you actually prefer uh, co-founders from day one versus the single founder? from day one uh, or, or not. Uh, I just recall you mentioning that earlier. Uh, do you have a preference one way or the other? You know, as you're asking the question, um, what I translated in my mind or I thought about was day one versus day zero. <laughs> hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm playing a trick on your question a little bit because almost never are there multiple founders at day zero. It is possible that three founders are out having a happy hour and they're riffing on some ideas and they magically come up with something together and they decide, wow, let's quit our jobs and do this. That is possible. But um, 90 plus percent of the time, it really is one founder that has the idea. And then and that's day zero. And then somewhere along the way, they, they recruit some others in. I don't uh, I don't have any issues at all with solo founder taking the venture through a bootstrap phase, uh, getting a prototype product kind of working and whatnot, even raising some money from Aunt Sally and Uncle Fred to, to, to do something that they need to do. But um, clearly, before they launch the product, there needs to be some other partners in crime. And whether those other partners in crime carry co-founder titles or not, I don't really care. Uh, and so to answer your question, it doesn't bother me at all if it's single founder, even single founder that carries it up into having a clunky, crappy, buggy, worky, pro working prototype thing. Hmm. Yeah. 
along those same lines about the type of uh, founders that you see and you come across, um, do you see any difference in the mistakes that founders make, whether they are first time uh, or as early in their career or late in their career? And because, and I can relate because I made this attempt later in my career. I was financially stable. My wife and I said, hey, you can take a shot at this. We can handle this risk, right? I had been through the executive and been in those roles. I'm curious what kind of mistakes you see there are difference between those two types of founders you come into come across. Hmm, that's a good question. I, I haven't thought about it in terms of categories of mistakes. Um, the the quantity of mistakes would be dramatically different. I mean, the first time founder, they just don't they don't see a mistake as it's right in front of their face and then their head hits the wall, right? Versus those of us that have battle scars and maybe some gray in our hair, which is not required. We've just, you know, we've gotten punched in the face enough that we see it, you know, at least when it's a foot or two away from us, yep. <laughs> uh, maybe before we hit the wall. Um, you know, or this just is the where, differences. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And this is where the, especially for first time founders, uh, their early advisors are so important. I mean, I just, just, I, I find when I'm having mentoring sessions and workshops with first time founders. I'm asking questions that they just, they hadn't even thought that the question was a possible question, right? So like, I'm trying to really expose them to things through my interrogation and through my questions. Whereas with uh, someone that's been around the block before, uh, someone like you that maybe hadn't started a startup, but they did have business experience. I can skip a number of those concepts and I can go straight into, you know, whatever the topic is at hand, pricing strategy or, or strategic partnerships. Whereas with first-time founders, I need to back up a little bit. I need to lead my way into that, which that right there just says they're mostly clueless on those things, which means they're going to, left on their own, make a lot of mistakes. And I always say that a startup's most valuable resource is time. They think their most valuable resource is funding or maybe people, and those are very important. But I quickly convince them, if I'm successful, that the reason they raise funding is to buy themselves time. You know, they need more resources, but with infinite time, any startup could adjust and adapt and generally figure things out until they have a viable business, right? And so when they make mistakes, what they basically do is they take a step backwards. They, 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 the, hour, the, the, the sand drips through the hourglass unnecessarily when they make those mistakes. And when the, when the hourglass runs out of sand, unfortunately, they have to pack up their toys and go home. And that's why mistakes are, are so painful. So um, let's dig a bit deeper into the leadership trap notion. So uh, for early stage leaders, doesn't necessarily have to be the CEO, early stage leaders of companies that are just getting off the ground, what are the more common traps you see them fall into? The, the, the mistakes made judgment that was off track, that that has some commonality to it? One of them I would say is, uh, and this is a tough one, because when I described earlier the importance of being confident yet coachable, it's really hard to objectively listen to someone telling you that some aspect of your business plan is flawed. Uh, now, it's one thing if, 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 if somebody's just telling you, oh, that's a stupid idea. Nobody wants that. Well, that's not very helpful. You know, so let's double click down into the various aspects of the business plan. The, the founder is pretty sure they've got it right. And so uh, one of the traps is not listening. And uh, I, I tell founders all the time, look, I'm going to tell you, you know, some ideas that I have. I'm going to ask you questions. I'm going to tell you stories. If you twist my arm, I will give you my, my opinion. See, um, when I mentor, I try to not give them the answer. They, they feel like because of what I do and, and my uh, prior track record, they think I have the answers. And they just want me to tell them, like, Gordon, is the answer 21 or 27? We, we know you know the answer. Just please tell us the answer. Well, the truth is, I don't know the answer. And, and oftentimes it's because it could be 21 or 27. If it's 21, you build the company this way. And these are the pros and cons and the implications of building that company. If the answer is 27, you do it a different way. So when they ask me, Gordon, what's the answer? I try to return their questions with questions. I try to use a Socratic method, right? Because um, I want them to come up with the answer. So first, 
I probably don't have the answer, but they probably do. So by asking questions, I'm trying to help them come up with the answer. I also try to tell stories. I try and pick a relevant story. I give the background. I tell the decision we made and how it worked out. Um, I'm really trying to arm them to, to come up with their own, uh, own answers. But I will often hear from a founder um, that they talk to three mentors. And these mentors, they obviously don't know what they're talking about because one of them told me to go left. Another one told me to go right. And the third one told me to keep going straight forward. So God, these mentors, they think they're so smart, but they don't know anything. And I'll tell them, no, you, you missed an opportunity. Do you understand why mentor A suggested go left and mentor B suggested right, et cetera? Well, no, they just said go left. One said go right. One, I said, you missed the whole important part of it. What's really important is why did they suggest that? Because if you're armed with that information, now you can make an informed decision. So this is why I think it's so important for the founders to just listen. It's okay if they reject all, it's okay if they reject left, right, and forward, and they conclude they should go backwards if they listened and processed what they heard. Uh, it's a it's a really important trap. It reminds me a lot of like the executive coaching that David and I do. Mm. It's I run into the same exact thing, right? You never give this advice, you net, but they they want it. Tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. And it really is about helping them become resourceful. And I think you bring up a great point. I hope our leaders don't miss here is listening isn't just hearing. It really is about being inquisitive and trying to acquire information and understanding context. So even asking questions is a form of listening. We had a startup in our early, early days back to, I don't know, 2010 or something. They adopted the strategy that if they met with mentors and one said, go left and one said, go right, they would try and do both. They would like, Let's do both of those and see what happens. So if they got conflicting advice, they would just try and do all of it. And I thought it was so brilliant. And of course, that's not possible in all cases. But what it really meant was they were trying to cover the bases. They were trying to experiment and they were really listening and observing uh, the reactions and the, and the outcomes from those. And I thought it was it, it's a good metaphor to, to think about. You can't do that later. But in the early days, I mean, you're pivoting so many times you may as well experiment. So it's it's a mindset. Can't help but think of the uh, time resources you're describing that, that yeah. you may not have the benefit and the luxury of time yes. as a primary resource to zig and zag That's correct. Uh, under all these conditions. I want to explore a bit further. This was one of the questions I had planned on uh, asking you, and you've been referring to it quite often. That's the notion of mentors, right? Mm. It seems like it's very much fundamental aspect of your work and the importance that you stress that entrepreneur companies and individuals should take on. What are the attributes of an ideal mentor from your perspective? Well, um, first, they should fill a gap. You know, every, every person has a gap in terms of skills and experience, even those of us that have been around the block and done a lot of different things. So as we start a new venture and we've got some co-founders, let's say, there's surely some gaps. There's functional gaps. You know, maybe you don't have anybody that knows anything about acquiring customers or anything about whatever. Okay. Um, there might be some industry gaps. There might be some gaps around things like fundraising. That's not a function, but it's a thing that's important. So the, the first value from a mentor is gap filling. Um, the other important thing to think about a mentor is how they interact with you. See, David, if, if you and I both needed to have, let's say, minor knee surgery, we'd go and we'd talk to some orthopedists or whatnot. And uh, we, let's say we interview the same 10 orthopedists. And let's say they're exactly the same qualified. You might pick a totally different one than me because of the way they interacted with you. We like to be interacted in certain ways uh, with, the, with the other professionals and so I, I think that's a really important part of finding the right mentor. And do they interact with the way that, that you like? Um, mentors aren't forever. Um, I, I encourage founders to think about the mentors along two dimensions, what they know versus who they know. Sometimes you need a mentor that's more optimized towards who they know around networking and things like that versus other times it's more uh, the pendulum swings the other way towards who they know. Uh, those are some of the basics of uh, of mentoring. 
what are some of the biggest traps you see the mentors make if you're advising them and some of them might be listening to the, to this episode? I'd say one of them comes back to something we, we talked about earlier, which is telling the startup what to do. It's easy as a mentor. Sometimes I really do feel like I know the answer. It's just crystal clear to me, especially if I've worked with the startup a few different times and I've, I've got a good handle on their business. It's easy to just fall in that trap and just tell them what to do and, and tell them why. And I, I think that's a big mistake. Um, and it's easy, it's easy to fall into that. Um, mentors sometimes feel like they can only be a resource in their, in their specialty lane. But, uh, I do workshops with mentors as well. And I remind them that, Hey, if you have 25 or 30 years of experience and you ran companies or you sat around the table with the CEO, you probably know a lot more than you think, you know, about strategic planning and about this and about that and about leadership and around recruiting and, all those kind of things. So even though the startup is bringing you on as a marketing mentor, look, there's a whole lot more you can bring to the table. Um, so that would be a, a mistake of them just kind of limiting themselves. Um, those would be a couple of the, the more common ones. Just one um, also insight. I, I'm just thinking back as you're, as you're talking about something about the mentors I met with when I was trying to go through that process and trying to do my startup. I would completely agree that I wish more mentors would have felt comfortable going outside of their space and just given general sort of advice and wisdom about, about mm-hmm. business. But also I felt also some, I think mentors make a mistake of not creating space for the founder to feel safe, to feel vulnerable. Mm-hmm. It was a little intimidating at, at times. And I think if there's some advice for any mentors listening now is it's a really scary space to be into, whether you're early in the process. For me, I was kind of late it still was a scary, scary, risky endeavor. And you felt there was a little of intimidation and, and creating that space is, a, is also sometimes a trap that I think mentors may not think about. It's a fine line between um, critiquing something um, while also letting the startup know, hey, I'm just telling you, I, I really don't like this part which you're working on. Let's talk about that. Let's work, let's work on that together. And um, you know, I'm a pretty nice guy. I, I can't get very uh, mad at startups uh, in, in mentoring sessions and advisory workshops. So sometimes when I really hate something that they're doing or something that they just said, I'll, I'll say, um, I'm yelling at you right now. Okay. And they'll kind of laugh. Ha 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 ha. Cause I say it just the way I just said it to you. And I say, <laughs> no, my voice isn't raised, but I want you to understand I'm yelling at you right now. So the next few <laughs> sentences, I need you to just pretend like my voice is raised and my arms are flailing. Okay, are you ready? <laughs> and, and this is my way of getting their attention to say, look, I really, really have a problem with this right here. But I'm not, I, I can't, I, I'm not the type to, even if I tried, I couldn't yell at a founder, right? I feel for them too much. So this is my way of yelling without yelling, <laughs> if you understand. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Hey, Gordon, uh, we gave you a heads up uh, prior to us going live about the um, show here in which we love to uh, pose a moral dilemma to our guests. And this is one that's a perennial favorite, but we've posed it only to those individuals who've come in with a history of being entrepreneurial CEOs over the course of their uh, careers. Uh, So I want to pose it to you from your perspective. Uh, so here's the dilemma. Um, let's say you have a situation, and this happens uh, more than uh, more than once. I've seen it uh, over the course of my career. You have a um, uh, a startup that's getting its next round of funding, so they're starting to gain traction and move along a little bit. So now you have a deep pocket investor joining the investor team, potentially taking a lead seat likely taking a lead seat on the board, and they are approaching this uh, uh, founding CEO, entrepreneurial CEO, and one or two of the uh, top executive team members and said, I'm going to invest in you, but you're going to have to fire the VP of marketing. So what's your guidance when that circumstance occurs? You've got deep pocket investor. They've surveyed the landscape of the executive team. They want someone immediately ousted. What's your guidance? 
wow. need to add some like dramatic music to this whole yeah. moral dilemma. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hopefully I put enough drama behind that. <laughs> I immediately become curious why they want the, the marketing VP ousted. So I, I'm now kind of imagining a couple different scenarios. Uh, could be a scenario where the investor invested in a company where that marketing VP was also there and just felt like they were a disaster. They were a reason the company crashed and burned or they're really cocky or something like that. Um, that one, I, so I, I could imagine that. Like that's one that doesn't freak me out. It causes me to really get interested and dig into, okay, look, tell me more about that. I'd go down to do some back channel checks and things like that. Now, if I really know this marketing VP and they've been true to us and I've never, it, I'm assuming it's not something in the ethical era uh, uh, arena, right? Let's say that yeah. it wasn't that there was sexual harassment or- you know, Right. Like, Let's say you're close enough to it and you've assessed the executive team and thought they're capable to take it to another stage, including the VP of marketing. So uh, you're as mystified as uh, the CEO and others. Yeah. Uh, definitely a good dilemma. I think one of my tendencies, honestly, would be to huddle with the founders and the and the marketing executive and say, "Look, I've been presented with a real interesting dilemma here," and uh, and talk it through. That would be a very uncomfortable conversation, of course. But there are a lot of those, and founding teams have to get used to uncomfortable conversations. I think I would want to just lay that on the table and like, "Hey, team, this is a big investor." I possibly would be influenced based on, do I have other opportunities for getting funded or have we been on this nine month fundraising journey and all of a sudden it's now down to this one and it's like, is the company potentially going to die if we don't take this investor? So I, I find myself wanting to know, do I have some options or not? If I don't have any options, yikes, this is a, this is a super tough one. And if the issue is not an ethical one, if it's just like they, they, they just, they don't like the person. I'd have a real problem if it were because of a, a diversity-related issue. You know, if the marketing VP were a, 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 of a race or gender that the investor didn't like, that so violates my founding principles and core values and stuff. That's an easy. So this maybe brings me to another point where I think the CEO and or the founding team, anytime they're faced with major dilemmas like that the first litmus test they can apply are their core values or founding principles. I was just going to say, yeah. it seems and, like you want to ensure they have really set yeah. those values that they can reference with confidence. Hopefully they have. I wrote articles about it. I teach about it in the early days. It, it leads to culture, but culture is the manifestation of the, of the core values or founding principles. Yep, absolutely. And when, found, and when founding principles or core values are real and when they've been exercised over time, they really become a good thing to fall back on. So I could see myself and the founding team staring at our core values and say, what are we getting? Hopefully, can we get some guidance here for how we deal with the situation? Uh, that's a non-specific answer. It's more of a, the method that I would use to try and come up with an answer. Yeah, thanks for wrestling mm -hmm. with it. This one is not easy. And I think you'll appreciate the fact that the entrepreneurial CEOs we've had uh, on the podcast have uh gone through those same, same gymnastics and certainly pushed back because they appreciated uh, from experience that they've brought the team along. They have an obligation to yeah. that team. They've got the ba their backs. They've established trust. And if they've established values as well, they're operating against those core values. So exactly. thanks for wrestling with it. Sure. That was interesting. You brought up the how you would sit down with them and have this, this tough, difficult conversation. I wonder how many, it just made me think for a minute, how powerful that moment probably was and how many founders probably missed the, the, the moment of like, it's like a Shakespearean play. They didn't sort of step out and realize all this, 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 what they were learning, what was happening was actually the conversation, not the content necessarily, but how to have that conversation, which was pretty powerful. There's a crazy scenario where the marketing VP says, look, this is a great investor. You know, I don't want, this is the last investor we have in the lineup. It's this or nothing. You know what company you should take the money, put me on as, you know, I let me, you know, go ahead and invest a little bit more of my equity and I'll be an advisor for a while or like, 
you know, I could see a scenario, like if you talk it through, you could imagine some scenarios where the, the marketing VP basically says it's in the best interest of the company for me to resign. <laughs> yeah. And that type of integrity um, goes miles into the quality of the leadership uh, that's expressed uh, and represented back to uh, investors. I mean, I've certainly dealt with, and you've dealt with endless uh, array of investors. And the ones that have done this a lot, usually are pretty savvy. They can pick up on the most critical things. Uh, and, and I had shared with you a while back about my background from the dot-com era days, I would suggest that investors were less concerned with the makeup of the executive team and more concerned yeah. about the look of the PowerPoint deck yeah. before they move forward. And, and of course, 20 years later, uh, they're a savvy bunch and they look at all the, uh, the elements, especially starting with the quality of uh, the people at the top. Fair? For sure. yes, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So, um, we said in our introduction earlier about you that uh, the Capital Factory is uh, your uh, current legacy that that continues to have a significant impact in the entrepreneurial scene, and uh, it's um, I view it as a living, breathing entrepreneurial community. In fact, quoting the website, I pulled up this quote. I like it. It's, mm -hmm. it's a space that doesn't break the bank with unmatched amenities like an on-site gym, stocked kitchen, cold brew, and local beer on tap, and a VR lab. Now, my question is, because that physical space uh, creates this community of fellow entrepreneurs uh, and the uh, intellectual energy that comes from that, have you guys uh, addressed uh, that lack of community as a result of the pandemic? Oh my goodness. Talk about a smack in the face, right? Yeah. For, for something that is so important to us. Um, it, it's amazing that things held together as, as well as it did. Uh, you know, I think if only Capital Factory had been affected by that and the rest of the universe were unaffected, yeah, that, that would have, let's say maybe game over. I don't know. But since everybody was affected, it's almost like a lot of our community, they just look to us, hey, Capital Factory, how do we stay connected? How do we foster a community? We immediately experimented with a few different things. Some worked better than others. Um, it's not the same. I don't want to pretend like the last year and a half has been the same as the, as the nine years before that. But we found a way of fostering enough community uh, found a way to make the mentors available to the startups readily with a even easier. I mean, the truth is we have 200 mentors across the whole great state of Texas before all of the office hours they did were in-person local. It meant that if the best mentor for a, a Dallas startup was in Houston, they didn't meet them unless they went to Houston. Immediately, they all became available. So there were some crazy advantages that got unlocked. Um, but I'll tell you, we did a major event last week in person. And when I got off the elevators and they opened and I saw 20 people in the lobby and I, wow, I almost started <laughs> crying. I mean, I really was like, wow, it just reminded me how important that aspect of everything we do in my world is. Sure. Now I'm with you. In fact, I'm curious, you've got years of experience in your um, background in the video conferencing space. Did you ever envision the possibility of video conferencing taking on this shape because we knew video conferencing back in the day of uh, conference room to conference room, right? In different yeah. parts of the world. Yeah. But uh, now we've got something completely different on, on our hands. Did, did you even have a sense that something like this was a possibility? Not the no. pandemic necessarily, right. but the, the usership. Oh. I, I knew that in our business setting, we would all have interactive video capabilities at our workstation, at our workspace, our, our workstation, our conference rooms. When I got into video conferencing, it was in the early days of desktop video conferencing, getting out of just the conference room and bringing it right to the desk. Um, but I do remember having almost yelling matches with a CTO of a company uh, that I was at for six years. His belief was that we'd have video conferencing in our cell phones and that we'd have them in our TV set top boxes too. And, and especially the cell phones, I'm like, that is the stupidest thing ever. First, and maybe it's technically 
possible. But like, what, we're going to walk around the street, we're going to be looking at it and talking to someone like, no, I mean, like, we would really argue over this. And of course, I was way wrong. The ubiquity of video conferencing now, it's just crazy. And having that available at the time that we slammed into a pandemic, just can you imagine not having that? Can you imagine if we had the pandemic in 2000? I, I mean, often think crappy, about that. crappy internet and yeah. like, man, it'd be an order of magnitude different for, for the whole business world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you said it. I mean, th- th- this is really, uh, as you know, as all three of us know, the reshaping of how work gets done and how we approach the necessity or lack thereof of being together uh, or not. And yeah. um and trying to strike that balance, as I noted earlier, this uh, physical community of people still matters. Um, yet also, people have found this sort of freedom to uh, work uh, in all sorts of places they wouldn't have thought of earlier, and still contribute significantly. So it yes. seems like this is still um, sorting itself out. And a lot of people say we're never going to go back to the way it was, and could be right. We'll have this hybrid work condition. Yeah. Um, it'll create new entrepreneurial opportunities. And that part of it is super, super exciting for sure. Yeah. 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 And Gordon, we only have a few minutes left and I want to make sure that, that we hit on this because I'm curious to the answer, or at least want to hear, want to hear you highlight some of the importance of this is you published a book recently called startup success, funding the early stages of your venture. Uh, and I, and it came out right, right before the pandemic hit, yeah. right. As well. Yeah. Right. Which is interesting yeah. timing. Um, I can tell you, I mean, Personally, this feels like the most impossible trap, first of all, right, is that whole funding piece. But what are some of the other critical traps or issues that you uh, you want to highlight from your book? As it relates to fundraising or not? Fundraising? Or just in general, just as the book itself. I'm just kind of curious for some of our listeners who might think, hmm, Gordon has a book. Yeah. Why so the primary themes. Yeah. Understand. Well, uh, one of the traps is, remember, founders assume that the idea they're working on is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Therefore, it's easy for them to also assume that the next round of funding, probably the first real round of funding, is going to be reasonably easy. Hey, I'm, I'm working on something that's going to revolutionize the world. It's a huge market. Customers love my product. So they think they'll get a round of funding done in two or three months. And so many times it takes five or six or eight months. Um, and uh, And that can be you know, it's so distracting that if you have to fundraise for five or six months, it means you're taking your eye off the business, which means your traction, uh, the graph, whatever your key metrics are, are not going up and to the right near as aggressively. And then it's a double whammy. You know, you're taking too long to fundraise. And when you come out of it now, your metrics don't look so, so hot. Um, that's a really big one. Another trap would be... Um, not all money is the same. I mean, the investor really matters, you know, at every stage, the angel investors you bring on, there are some angel investors that are kind of predatory and they're kind of a-holes and that can really make your life difficult, even though they only wrote a $25,000 check. Um, And then the same thing happens at, at every stage. So it's not just money. It's like, it really is the money coming from who, you know, and, um, and that's really important to, to understand. Those would be, those would be two really big ones. Yeah. I, I was fortunate to get uh, very friendly investors early on, but I can yeah. tell you, I was always anxious about that. And a lot of the advice I got at Capital Factory from mentors I met with repeated that as well, which is be really careful. Not all money is the same. So that, yeah. that's good advice. Yeah. And just to reinforce, um, this is not strictly for a technology audience. That's true. Uh, in any sector, uh, we'll see value in this. Any, any entrepreneurial startup CEO will gain plenty of value out of uh, yeah. the themes you raise in the book. Yeah, I'm not surprised. So um, uh, we're running out of time. I did want to ask you a, a general question. Um, since you're the founder Whisper, having done this for so long now, why does this work interest you? It seems like you've got a real passion, sustained passion in this work. So if you know the book Strengths Finder 2.0, the, the predecessor oh, yeah. was called Now Discover Your Strengths. So yeah. I read it when it was called Now Discover Your Strengths. But um, it didn't surprise me when I learned that my number one strength was learner. So I'm driven by learning. 
And when I tell people that, they say, yeah, but Gordon, you're not learning, you're teaching, like you're, you're mentoring, like you're teaching all of us what to do. And I tell them, no, 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 no. The pace of innovation is so rapid. The new business models, the new technologies, I just, I, I, I get goosebumps um, at the opportunities that I have to learn from the environment that I'm in. When I'm helping these founders working on seemingly crazy ideas, they're opening up something that, that two years ago was totally impossible. And so when you think about how AI is going to revolutionize the world and, and robotics and, and transportation and just the list gets really long and it, it, it just, it fills my heart and my brain to know that for as long as I can, you know, keep delivering some value to these founders, there might be a day where I'm just so old and my wrinkles are, are hanging down to my chin or whatnot. And I, and I just look like a super old guy, but as long as they'll let me help them in ways that I can, I actually know that I will selfishly be learning and, and I know that that will never end because this thing just changes so often, it'll be an infinite opportunity to learn. And that's that's why I do it. Well, I appreciate that. I can tell you, my strengths finder as well as achiever learner, right? So it's just that constant drive through that. Yep. Yep. Um, as we close, one, 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 one little question or a comment or at least was I appreciated was your blog, Mastering the 30-Minute Meeting, uh-huh. is a piece of art because Thank it's you. so practical. Thank I mean, you. if our listeners, you don't have to even be any anywhere near entrepreneurship. Like <laughs> I, 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 I've been in the field for a while. I am watching or listening to it or reading it going, oh, I could do that. That whole <laughs> checklist. And I really appreciate how practical you are. The many, many, I think mentors who give advice are often very 30,000 foot level. It's a little bit about their ego. So I just want to say, as we start to close, Gordon, how much I appreciate what you've done for entrepreneurship and just beyond that. It's been super helpful, I think, and hopefully our listeners have appreciated that too. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Same here, Gordon. Um, real pleasure. Maybe if possible, down the road, we can do a Gordon 2.0 uh, and, and continue some of the themes that we touched on and others we didn't even have a chance to get to. I'd love to do it. Thank you. Yes. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show, Gordon. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Do you know a leader who could benefit from hearing about the leadership trap? Well, we hope you will share this podcast with them. And remember, give the podcast a five-star rating. Every rating helps us reach more leaders. You can find us at theleadershiptrap.org. Okay, we'll see you next time. And until then, stay out of those traps.